This presentation is from UX Australia 2019, Sydney. Cool. I got the okay to begin. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and start. Um, so we've asked you guys to go ahead and define vulnerability. Um, and as we, as we as designers are more often than not designing for vulnerable customers and know someone that has experienced trauma in our lives, this is why this is so important. But are we trained on how to design for vulnerability? Do we understand the impacts that vulnerability has on people's lives? The definitions in Slido's have been taken from a group of 50 diverse people. And that's not only designers and product managers and strategists, it's also people that are, service, are in the services, like police or other service providers like support workers. We've combined that list with a group of best practice definitions, if you will. So when you're selecting them, you actually don't know whether or not it's someone's own words or it's the best practice definition. And we did this because what we understood is that there's more than one definition of vulnerability. And not just one answer is potentially correct. These are all accurate descriptions of vulnerability. And vulnerability is not limited to one person's circumstances or experience. Oh, I can also kind of count how many people are in the room. It says 61, but I, I'm not the best at maths, but I feel like there's more than 61 people <laughs> in this room. So you can take a picture of that as well and, and go back to it if you haven't had the opportunity. But we're going to go ahead and flip over to our, our slides and, talk, and really start the talk. That was just a warm up. And I was hoping to get at least one laugh, which I've done. <laughs> Mike in the, Michael in the back, who's the science sound guy, told me that if necessary, he has a laughing clip that he can play. So I might just use that. Don't be alarmed. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so when we began this journey to this talk. We started with a group of friendlies. And some of those friendlies are in the room. They're our colleagues. And what they told us was some of the harshest critiques we received of anyone else that we spoke to, which isn't surprising. I mean, they're friendlies, right? And they said that there's something wrong with our title. Can anybody guess what it is? Customers, who said that? Oh, well done, it's customers. Because we're not just designing for customers. We are designing for people. We are designing for beautiful, messy, complex people. And this was a comment that was made yesterday in the other room in the ethics and design discussion. And the comment was, when will we replace customers and users and start calling them humans? And that's what we all are, and that's who we're designing our services and products for. So it's important that we remove that customer lens and we understand people, their context, where they're coming from, and their stories around that. Now, between Tash and I, we worked out that we have about 15 years of experience in this space. And that's not just exclusively as designers. We have done other things in this space. And what we want to share with you today is our knowledge that we've gained along the way we want to share with you the stories that we have, and we also want to share with you our point of view. And what we believe 
is that if we start at the definition of vulnerability, what we can do is elevate everyone in the room and hopefully beyond, that then it makes it less scary to talk about vulnerability and designing for people that come from these circumstances. So introduction, now that I've bored you with 15 minutes of talking, I'm Chloe. Hi. That's my beautiful family on the, what side is that? My right, your left, thank you. <laughs> um, I don't know if you noticed, but I'm brown. I'm a black woman. And I wear my diversity on my sleeve. I can't hide from it. And oftentimes, because I'm a black woman, what ends up happening is I'm a part of a marginalized community that then is oftentimes taken advantage of. And we'll talk about these different groups of people and how marginalized community can therefore become more vulnerable. But I also have lived experience with persistent vulnerability. I've experienced with layers of vulnerability. And uh, Liz Jackson, I think, who's in the room, she talked about yesterday how important it is to not just design with empathy, but design with lived experience, with people that actually have gone through that. And we believe the same exact thing. So I've worked with survivors of sexual assault. I've worked with survivors of child sexual abuse. I've worked with veterans um, and also people that are homeless, people that are unemployed and elderly. And I'm currently working with chronically and terminally ill patients, or people, I should say, not patients, right? As as a role. Why I'm passionate about this is that I come from a privileged place. I get to sit at tables with executives and people like yourselves and tell their stories, not only my story, but their stories. This has led me to find my purpose at work to become a voice for the voiceless. And so I'm Tash, for those of you that don't know me. And so Chloe and I work together at PwC as service designers. And now while working for a big corporation comes with some bias, it also comes with an amazing opportunity for us to pull our resources and make a difference at scale. But at the heart of why we're here, it's not ultimately what organization we work for. It comes down to people. It's the people we've worked with. It's the people we've designed with. But also it's us as individuals, because we're people too. And as people, we have our own vulnerabilities that we've experienced. And so for us, it's about taking the stories from these different types of people who have experienced these different types of vulnerabilities. And it's about sharing those stories with people that can affect change. But it's not just on us to share those stories. It's on us to actually bring them along the journey and have their stories heard and support them to be able to tell their stories of vulnerability. So part of our role as designers is about challenging what projects we're working on. It's about challenging whether or not we're actually designing to make a difference for people. And so ultimately, what it comes down to is it's no longer an excuse for us to say we work for a big corporation that has some legacy, or we work for a big corporation where it has some constraints. Because as a big corporation, we can make a difference at scale. And at PwC, I've had a real opportunity to do that. I've worked with uh, veterans who are totally and permanently incapacitated. I've worked with people who have a disability. I've worked with people who are homeless, people in financial hardship, people who have experienced family and domestic violence. And ultimately, by hearing their stories, what it's made me come to realize is that we need to be designing for vulnerability in the same way that we design for accessibility. In the same way we're starting to think about sustainability, vulnerability should be in everything that we do. And so 
one of the key projects that Chloe and I have worked on is something called the Constellation Project. And this is a little bit of context setting uh, because it is something that has influenced a lot of our work and a lot of our thoughts. But it's also a little bit of a plug. <laughs> so the Constellation Project uh, is a cross-sector initiative. Uh, so it's working with uh, Mission Australia, Centre for Social Impact, Australian Red Cross, and PwC as the founding members in order to really influence change cross-sectors to end homelessness in a generation. But what does that actually mean? How can we end homelessness by 2035? How can we bring homelessness down to functional zero? So how can we have enough safe, accessible, affordable, appropriate, and secure housing for our growing population? But it was really interesting, because when we sat in the room as founding members, we asked ourselves, how will we know if the Constellation Project has been successful? And what we said is that we'll know if it's become successful, because it will no longer exist. So ultimately, when we design for vulnerability, we're actually trying to design ourselves out of a job. Because if we design for vulnerability, services will be so seamless that we won't need to design for vulnerability anymore. Or we may actually have the unique opportunity in some circumstances to prevent that vulnerability from happening at all. And so I mentioned that this was a little bit of a plug as well. <laughs> uh, so the Constellation Project, we're actually about to start our next wave, which is focusing around the better journeys uh, for people who are in experiences of homelessness. So I'd encourage you to take a picture or go onto this link. Uh, and if you're interested, uh, please do sign up because we are looking uh, for more people to join us and collaborate on ending homelessness. Just to read out that link, it's theconstellationproject.com.au slash join hash us. us. Thank you. Daniela's tweeting it. Follow Daniela. <laughs> um, we think it's important to practice what you preach. Um, and so this is a bit of disclaimer. And we do this if, we, if you were a group of vulnerable people as well. And what that is is that we're going to be talking about some sensitive topics. And what's important is that people take care of themselves first. And so if you were a group of people vulnerable, from vulnerable circumstances, which some of you may be, um, if at any point you feel triggered and you need to step out of the room, please do so. You need to take care of yourself first. So we're gonna, with each of our sections, have a challenge question in the beginning and a key takeaway at the end. And our first section is around how can we better understand and define vulnerability? And that's where we started with a definition. But before we do that, I want everyone to do an exercise with me. This is going to be a little fun, but what I want you to do is close your eyes. Now imagine that you are in a foreign country. You do not speak the language. You don't even recognize the characters that they use to make up the letters of words. Your wallet and your phone are gone. You are alone. It's dark and you don't know how to get back to the place that you were staying. How do you feel? When you're ready, go ahead and come back to the room. How did you feel? Scared? Scared? Stressed? Isolated. Isolated? Oftentimes, this is how people that come from vulnerable circumstances feel on a continued basis. And like I said, we wanted to start from a definition of vulnerability. And that definition that we liked isn't the only one, like I said, 
but vulnerability can be defined as a diminished capacity of an individual or group to anticipate, cope with, resist, and recover from the impact of a natural or man-made disaster. And we liked this one because it talks about anticipation, coping, resisting, and recovering, which we're gonna talk about a bit more. And it's not just about hazards that we experience, but how we respond to those hazards and build resilience. And now for some of us, that might be a little bit more right-brained or analytical like myself. These are a bit too many words, so we do have an equation, which is the next slide. And that is vulnerability equals hazards minus coping. So what's a hazard? Hazards are when someone experiences danger or a risk of social, physical, and or emotional harm. And it's made up of a few key areas. The probability of experiencing this hazard, the primacy or shock value since the previous occurrence, the predictability or the warning that they have up until then, the prevalence and the extent or duration, and the pressure, the intensity of that impact. And when we talk about coping, coping is someone's ability to respond to a present or future hazard. And oftentimes we think about resilience, and resilience is a key factor in being able to cope. Coping comes from a personal, private, and public action to avoid, ensure, prevent, and mitigate these hazards. Ultimately, it's a person's ability to act and benefit from responding to these hazards that creates resilience. And so we have a unique opportunity to proactively design for people in vulnerability. And the way that we do this is by increasing their ability to cope when they encounter some of these hazards. And so it's not just about giving people access to the support services when they need it in a timely manner. We actually have the opportunity to prevent some of them entering vulnerability in the first place. And so the way that we do this is by starting with access to basic resources. And this isn't just resources for myself as an individual who may be experiencing vulnerability. It's also providing those resources to people that I might be dependent on or people that are dependent on me. And so it's things like food, accesses to medicine, being able to visit a doctor, shelter, clothing. And once we have that, we can start to build emotional resilience. So we've talked a little bit about resilience, uh, but ultimately more resilient people they're able to adapt and respond to some of those hazards. And those that are less resilient, they can be subjected to vulnerability at a heightened level. They can be subjected to vulnerability over time. And so we also need to connect this with social support. And social support isn't just about people in my support network. It's about social inclusion. It's being connected to my local community, being connected to local services and activities. But it's also giving me the resources and opportunities that I need in order to be fulfilled. But I mentioned that as designers, we want to do more. We don't just want to support people and boost resilience. We want to shift people from being vulnerable to being empowered. We want to improve their quality of lives. We want to get them out of the vulnerable circumstance where we can. And so the way that we start to do this is through looking at things like literacy. Because through literacy, people have the power to be able to understand and negotiate the different services and products which might be able to alleviate their circumstance. 
And it's not just about English literacy. It's not just about digital literacy. It's also about financial literacy, because we know that this is one of the key factors of vulnerability. And from there, what we can do is create professional self-esteem. And this isn't just about finding employment, sustaining employment. This is about giving people purpose. It's about giving people meaning. And then we can help them to become more empowered. And so if we can service people in this way, if we can help their ability to cope, if we can build their resilience, we can actually better design for prevention over intervention. And while people's circumstances of vulnerability are unique, one person's vulnerability may be different to another, and therefore they might need different levels of support in each of these facets. But ultimately, what we want to do is connect people to timely support by giving them access to these services, and for those that we can affect, potentially even prevent them from entering vulnerability in the first place. So we think it's important to share a story. And this is Robin, um, who shares her story of becoming homeless. When you listen to Robin's story, what do you think about it? What resonates with you? And how does it make you feel? Well, I didn't really realize I was homeless until I was talking to a woman uh, about finding a, affordable housing for myself. And uh, she said, oh, you're homeless. And uh, I said, no, no, I have a bed every night. My daughter's put me up and my sister's helping me and she's got a room for me. Um, she said, no, but you haven't got a house of your own. And it came as a big shock that I was homeless. My husband was a journalist and he was moving around the world. We had four children. Wherever we went, we were renting because it wasn't worth buying because we never knew how long we'd stay somewhere. And when we got back to Australia after about 20 years, not long after that, my husband died, unfortunately. Well, I just, uh, that was the beginning of being homeless, I guess. I didn't know it, but um, everybody was helping me, but it's just a matter of money and, and that I hadn't saved enough, I hadn't put money away. I think we need to learn more about prevention of homelessness, particularly with women. What's powerful about Robin's story is that oftentimes people don't realize that they're in vulnerable circumstances. So Robin didn't even know that she was homeless until her friend pointed it out to her. And Tasha and I have had the opportunity and privilege to meet Robin as a part of the Constellation Project. And sadly, her story is not uncommon. Increasing numbers of older Australian women are experiencing or at the risk of experiencing homelessness. And that's been at a rise of 30% over just the last five years. Two thirds of single women on age pension who do not own their homes have less than $50,000 in assets. Now we're gonna to turn to the different types of vulnerability. And one of those is structural or physical. And we're seeing this a lot in Sydney where um, there's the Opal Tower or the tower and mascot where the building itself is no longer safe for people to dwell in. 
and they find themselves then homeless. The second one is economic, so people's access to finances. So what I've done some research on and then trying to help with currently is loss of jobs that then leads to entry into financial hardship, which is rising for a certain population. We also have environmental types of vulnerability. So right now it's pretty cold outside, it's freezing, it's raining, and where I live actually this weekend it's supposed to snow. So for someone that's homeless or sleeping on the streets, rough sleeping, where do they go when all of the centers are full? How do they stay safe and healthy? And lastly is social. So an example of this is slavery, and that's the existence or the not having the existence of peace or security, fulfillment of basic human rights and social equity is what social is all about. But slavery is an example of that. And in that picture on the right-hand side, that's actually my big mama's grandfather. He was a slave in Virginia. At this point, though, this picture is taken. He is a free man, thankfully. But we're not going to have time to go into some other types of vulnerability, and one of those is transgenerational vulnerability. And that is that continued and persistent vulnerability for people based upon what their ancestors went through. So for me, it's four generations removed from my daughter, who's in the top right there, her first picture. It's five generations removed. Some cohorts have increased likelihood, some people. So what are we going to do about it? So when we think about vulnerability, there are some common hazards and populations which are more likely of being vulnerable. And we can use this not just to identify, but also to predict if people are going to fall into some of these circumstances so that we can provide proactive support. It's pretty powerful. And we can do this with scary accuracy. And so we have a problem as designers around when do we ethically intervene? When do we ethically provide proactive services when we know that people might be at a heightened risk of vulnerability? Because ultimately, we might be able to detect or predict someone is vulnerable before they know it themselves. If we go back to that example of Robin, she didn't know that she was homeless until she had a conversation with one of her friends. And so as designers, we need to get that tension right between providing that proactive servicing, but also making sure we're designing for what's right, because customers may not perceive themselves as vulnerable, or they may not know yet that they are in a vulnerable circumstance. So we're not going to go into a whole heap of details. So if you want to take a photo, uh, this is probably the slide to take a photo of. I promise there are no more slides with this many words on it. <laughs> uh, but what we did uh, want to show is that there are some key hazards, which Chloe talked to. Uh, but there are also some key populations which are, an are at an increased risk of vulnerability. And when we say at an increased risk of vulnerability, data has shown us that for these populations, they are three times more likely to experience vulnerable circumstances. And so for these particular populations, if they do experience some of these hazards, they're more likely to enter these vulnerability experiences. And these can be experiences of homelessness, experiences of financial hardship, and also experiences of abuse. But when we think about vulnerability as designers, as individuals, as people, we carry our own biases. And the biggest example of this is when we think about homelessness. If I got you to picture homelessness, most of you right now would probably be picturing the man that you walked past this morning asking for money in a coffee cup. He's rough sleeping. 
But that's not all about what homelessness is. That's homelessness in a state of crisis. But homelessness is actually about those people living in temporary accommodation. It's about those people that are couch surfing, like in Robin's instance. And if we think about financial hardship, it's not just about bankruptcy. It's also about financial dependency and what happens when that person that we're dependent on passes away or what happens when we separate. And when we think about experiences of abuse, it's not just what we can physically see or notice. It's also about some of that controlling behavior. And so when we design for vulnerability, we need to think bigger. And I think between all of us, we've probably experienced one of these types of vulnerability or with just one degree of separation and know someone who's in one of these circumstances. And so as humans, we all experience times of vulnerability in our daily lives. And I think for me, this became really apparent about three weeks ago. Uh, so I've spent the last 11 months going through a de facto divorce, something I didn't even know was a thing. <laughs> Uh, and over the last 11 months, I, in myself, have been quite vulnerable. Uh, it's been something which has been really challenging for me to get through. And I was quite proud because in this moment, I thought, you know what, I can find my independence. I'm going to retain my house. I'm going to keep paying my mortgage without the support of my ex-partner. But actually, my legal fees ended up being triple uh, what I was initially quoted. I had to pay him three times the amount that he actually put into the house. And to be honest, this was my house. He just made some improvements on the side. All of a sudden, I was in a vulnerable circumstance. I needed to seek help. I needed to get a personal loan in order to, uh, in order to negate some of these unexpected circumstances. And I got this response. We have carefully assessed your application, and unfortunately, it has been unsuccessful based on your financial circumstances. I couldn't understand. I was confused. I just got a pay rise. I had all my finances in check. I'd been paying all my bills. What had gone wrong? What had gone wrong was a broken API. The credit reporting company had reported that I was eight months overdue on my mortgage. When the lender ran a credit check to see if they could service me for a personal loan, they came back saying I was one stage off bankrupt. That's a really, really scary thought. It took one month to resolve. And for me, I was lucky. It was because I had the experience of an amazing bank manager who went above and beyond. She contacted my mortgage provider. She contacted the credit reporting company. She tried to see what was going on behind the scenes, and we identified that it was a broken API. But this broken API actually affected 1,000 customers. I was one of the lucky ones. I had my family that I could lean on in times of financial support. I was able to cope with the hazard that came up in my way. But what happened to those people that needed access to urgent financial support? What happens to those people that were in a greater vulnerable circumstance than I was? I was one of the lucky ones. So a key takeaway here is that we need to, to take proactive responsibility for identifying and supporting people in vulnerable circumstances. And in understanding and defining vulnerability, we can use this framework to think proactively. We need to think about different types of vulnerability and what occurs when people are exposed to multiple hazards, which is our next section. Are we designing holistic services that take vulnerability layering into account? And when you think about vulnerability over time, there's two key areas, and that's proximate, people's change in situation, or structural 
a steady and chronic state. Ultimately, it's a combination of some of these, these factors that determines vulnerability, alongside people's ability to respond to the hazard and adapt the change. According to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, one in 23 Australians will experience deep and persistent vulnerability in their lifetimes. When we think back to that group of vulnerable people, like pregnant women, it's closer to one in six. Circumstances can compound, and we know this. Anticipating future hazards becomes more difficult. Entering crisis becomes more frequent. And it's easy to become stuck in what we call a vulnerability cycle, going between hardship and coping, hardship and coping, without the ability to get a breath or to take a breath. This oftentimes creates a crisis situation. Therefore, we need to intervene before vulnerability compounds or make sure that we are treating all layers of vulnerability and looking at people holistically so that we can help people cope. And so two examples we wanted to take you through was Ask Izzy and the safe haven uh, at St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. And so Ask Izzy uh, is an example of a tactical design response where we've tried to look at how we can increase the awareness of people that are in vulnerability so they can get timely access to some of these services uh, which people might need when they're in that circumstance. And so it's a digital website, people can log on and whether they are either about to um, experience a hazard or whether or not they're actually in that time of need and they need access to that immediate support, they can find out what some of these where some of these services are available to them. But on the right, we have the Safe Haven Cafe. And so at the moment, uh, in, well, previously um, at St. Vincent's in Melbourne, uh, when people would present in the emergency department with severe mental health, with thoughts of suicide, uh, they would put them into what they called a safe room. They would go into this room uh, for up to three hours before they were actually seen by someone uh, for their mental health. And there were a number of appearances every day in the emergency departments because there was no place that these people could go. And so the Safe Haven Cafe was created. People could go to this cafe, they could talk to a social worker, they could get into the warmth, uh, they could have a tea or a coffee, they could have a conversation. But where it becomes really powerful is when these two services actually come together. So those people, those so social workers who were servicing those people uh, who had come to the Safe Haven Cafe, they would use the Ask Izzy in order to direct them to services which they might need. And so when we design for people in these circumstances, we need to think holistically, but we also need to think about the different types of vulnerability and how we can service people across different channels based on their needs. So a key takeaway here is we need to design holistic services which provide people additional support based upon vulnerability layering. Ultimately, it's the combination of some of these factors that determines vulnerability, and it's ever-present that we need a fact, to factor in vulnerability in all facets of our design. The next section we want to talk about is, can we design specifically for vulnerability, for the benefit of everyone? And so I think as designers, there are definitely instances where we do need to design specifically for vulnerability. And a really good example of this is life insurance and income protection 
We know that when someone takes up life insurance or when they take up income protection, they may not necessarily be in a state of vulnerability. But if they need to make a claim, that's when they're going to be at their most vulnerable. And so how do we design for that? So I worked with an insurance provider in order to understand why customers were taking up their services and then why they were churning uh, within the first three months of using their service. And what they found is that people who were purchasing life insurance and income protection, 20% of them would drop off in the first three months. And so we went out and we talked to customers and we made one small simple change. And that was asking people up front when they purchased these services why they had actually made that decision to purchase this today. And what we found is that there were two key jobs. The first one is that they may have had a change in financial situation, meaning they needed to reassess their finances or meaning that they needed to uh, review uh, their tax offset, just to be frank. But then the second job was really, really important to understand because people would purchase life insurance or income protection after experiencing a really traumatic event. And this was really important to understand because we then asked the question, are you okay? We embedded that into our services. We enabled uh, the service providers to have a one and two month check-ins. And all of a sudden, that churn rate dropped by half. But then there was one other thing we needed to design for. So I mentioned that if someone needs to make a claim, that's when they're probably in an instance of where they're most vulnerable. And so what this particular insurance provider was doing was enabling people to have straight through pro processing when they made their initial purchase. That all sounds great. But what that meant in reality is that when people actually experienced a vulnerability and they needed to make a claim, they needed to go through a medical assessment because they didn't do that up front. They're at their most vulnerable and they needed to go through a full medical assessment when they may be unable to drive. They may have to travel over half an hour. And so what we needed to do was flip that framing and make sure that we educated customers on the reason why we needed them to take that medical up front and the reason why we made some of those decisions to remove straight through processing so that we were designing specifically for them when they were vulnerable. Now this is all well and good, but I think when we design specifically for vulnerability, us as designers need to make sure we continually ask ourselves, are we designing in the best interest of the people that we're designing for, or better, the people that we're designing with? And I think one really good example of this, I was reading an article yesterday, it was a blog post, uh, where someone was talking about how they're a slave uh, to Candy Crush micro-purchasing. And I think this is an example of where you, we're designing specifically for vulnerability, but we're doing bad design. Because we're designing specifically for that small percentage of customers who are addicted, who are vulnerable. And that's not why we exist as designers. We exist as designers to make sure we're advocating for the people that we're designing for, that we're bringing them along their journey. And so ultimately, as designers, as the people in this room, we are the voice that needs to drive action. But we know it doesn't just come down to stories. It also comes down to facts. And so when we talk about homelessness, we need to take the story of Roman and we need to elevate that with some figures. And one of those figures is that if we just focused on the most vulnerable, and we talked about homelessness, remember that was only a very small instance, we would save 250 million a year. And so we need to take those facts, we need to take those figures, we need to take those stories in order to make sure that we're designing holistic services for people in these circumstances. So I just got the warning that we got eight minutes, so uh, I might talk faster, and apologies because I do have an American mumble, so try to keep up with me. Um, 
Liz Jackson yesterday gave some good examples of how when we use accessibility design, and it benefits everyone, right? She talked about curbs, she talked about closed captions, which I just watched The Castle and had to have closed captions on if I'm completely honest. <laughs> but here's another example, and that is um, if you see the blue light to the right, um, it was originally designed to identify where there are disability parking available. Now it's pretty much in a lot of Westfields, pretty much in a lot of shopping centers for everyone to know where there's just parking available. It's great. I love to know that because I always get a little bit scared in those Westfield parking lots that I might gonna hit somebody with my little SUV. So the question really becomes, or the statement, the key takeaway is just like we design for accessibility and sustainability, we need to design for vulnerability. So let's recap. There's three key learnings need to take proactive responsibility for identifying and supporting people in vulnerable circumstances. We need to design holistic services which provide customers additional support based on vulnerability layering. And just like we design for accessibility and sustainability, we need to design for vulnerability. But that's not it. There's two other non-negotiables, and I promise we'll go fast, because people from the other talk are coming in, so they did a better job on time management than we did. <laughs> But what we have here is we need to make sure that we have lived experience involved. And it's not just lived experience, if we can go on to the next slide, it's also lived expertise. And Brene Brown gives a great quote, which is, our job as designers is typically as storytellers, researchers. We capture stories as data and communicate these to the person that can affect change in each organization. But it's not enough to be a storyteller. We have to involve those with lived experience and be part of our design process and designing those services and products that they themselves are going to use. And you look at empathy versus lived experience, there are some, there are some benefits as well as some risks. And again, the camera icon, so go ahead and take a picture of that because I'm not gonna go in detail of it. But what I will say, is that you need a combination of empathy and lived experiences because of these risks and because they need to work together. And I witnessed this firsthand where someone with lived experience, two people with lived experience within my lab team, the Constellation Project, were coming at odds. And it's something called the empathy gap, where you have less empathy for people, other people because you've been through it before. And there was a recent article that came out that talked about how it's difficult to accurately recall just how difficult and painful and stressful or emotional a draining past adverse experience was. And what you tend to remember is that it can be conquered and therefore be less empath empathetic towards other people that are still struggling. And that's why it's important to embed lived expertise. And that are people that have gone through that lived experience but are actually advocates and they understand it a bit more because they have a broader experience of people that are still struggling through it. And so when we involve people with lived experience, it's not just about involving them in our design, it's about embedding them in our teams and developing that authentic two-way relationship. So again, you've got the camera icon there, we're not gonna talk into this in too much detail, uh, but this was a framework that was developed by Glover and Hodges uh, in partnership with Mission Australia. And it talks about how us as designers, we need to elevate those with lived experience to master their vulnerability, to have that lived expertise, to be able to learn with and from each other. And we need to make sure that us as designers, when we go back to initially what our role is, 
Ultimately, what we're trying to do is design ourselves out of a job. We want to make sure that we don't need to design for vulnerability because it's so integrated in our, to de in our design, but also that people with lived experience are the ones that are really driving the design. We're just the facilitators of change. So the second to last key takeaway, don't kill me, um, was when we design, we're designing for vulnerability people, vulnerable people, always include people with both lived experience and lived expertise. So the last one, when we practice self-care, we need to do this as part of our practice to ensure our well-being. And no more evident was this to me when I was working with survivors of child sexual abuse and I fell pregnant myself. And this is my daughter in my womb, <laughs> no longer, she's out. Um, and I realized that it's important to do this, so you can't go it alone. You have to ensure that there are escalation points when you're engaging people that for a, have a vulnerable circumstance. Because if they get triggered and they need help, it shouldn't fall on your shoulders. So 1-800-RESPECT is a great organization for that. Lifeline, Beyond Blue, these are all places that you should be giving people that are vulnerable um, to go and get more help. Self-care is always a good thing to go back to, meditation, those sort of things, as well as a well-being framework. So self-care practices are essential for us to remain empathetic, build resilience, and protect ourselves from vicarious trauma. So what I ask is if everyone get their phones out and take a photo of this slide, because this is the most important slide. You've heard about vulnerability. What we want you to do is think about how you can do the smallest thing in order to make the biggest difference. How you can make a change tomorrow. How you can make a change in your next project by designing for vulnerability. And so our ask is that by the end of today, if you can go on Slido, think about these five key principles, and I want you to say what you're going to do differently in your design. And we'll share those results uh, early next week on the back of this talk. So I want to tell you a story, and you know how this ends, uh, because you saw a beautiful picture of my family. So I am happily married to a wonderful husband. I have a beautiful one-year-old daughter and a sweet nine-year-old stepson. But four years ago, my world was shattered. My partner at the time died tragically and suddenly. I had a miscarriage and a dear friend of mine who served in the US Marine Corps committed suicide. This happened all within the space of a month. I was rocked to my core. I was hurt. I was vulnerable. But I was still in the community, engaging in services and products that I would engage with every day, probably even more so then because it was at that time that I needed to be connected to something bigger than myself. It was then that I realized that the experiences that were designed with me in mind, and I mean me, not just a number or a dollar sign, but me as a human, were the experiences that I managed to find connection in. The people, the employees that managed to smile at me as I was, and ask how I was going, not out of obligation, but out of care, stayed with me. In these moments that we create moments of healing, that at our most vulnerable, we are all still human. This is why Natasha and I design for vulnerable people, not customers. Thank you.